Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Ijoma Taylor, and I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to everyone to this WIMBY's webinar titled Take a Stand, Say No to Sexual and Gender-Based Violence. Okay, so just to give us all a bit of background, Women in Management, Business and Public Se Service, WIMBY's, is a non-profit organization that has over the last 19 years implemented programs that inspire, empower, and advocate for greater representation of women in leadership positions in the public and private sector. WIMBIS is the first Nigerian NGO rated by NGO advisor, and it's ranked as 428th worldwide. It is the only African and or Nigerian affiliate partner and representative of the International Women's Entrepreneurship Challenge Foundation. IWEC. WIMBIS is also, of course, a volunteer-based organization funded largely by donations and contributions by members and partners, and is a supporter for the Code of Ethics and Conduct for NGOs. For more information about WIMBIS, please visit www.wimbiz.org. Okay, so I just have a couple of, you know, announcements to make and then we can get straight into it. Firstly, um, just want to say an evaluation link will be sent to you all in a follow-up email after this um, webinar. Please endeavor to fill it. We want to hear your opinion about this webinar. We need your feedback, okay? Um, if you, to, you know, you must join us, become a WIMBIS associate, um, please, if you've already, if you're already a member, kindly pay your dues, renew your membership dues. The inf information can be found at membership at wimbiz.org. Um, at this stage, I'd very much like to thank our sponsors, Sterling Bank, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Farm Investments, AG Leventis, and Printivo. Um, we thank you so much for believing in the cause and for supporting us. Thank you very much. Now, this is a very timely and important conversation. So as we go through this webinar, can I just ask all participants to please tweet and tag us on all our social media hang handles using the hashtags which are on your screen right now. Wimbiz says no, end the silence, time to act and end the cycle of violence. Our social media hand handles on LinkedIn are Women in Management, Business and Public Service. And on Twitter, we are at WIMBIS. So we've got a very interesting lineup of activities. And I encourage you all to sit through the program. You do not want to miss any of this. We have coming up a performance by an award-winning writer and poet, as well as a panel um, discussion by very distinguished panelists. For the panel discussions, please note that all panelists all participants, I'm sorry, should please ask their questions using the Q&A box. Not the chat box, please. Use the Q&A box. Now on to the very hot topic for today. First off, I would like to introduce our moderator for the panel discussion, a phenomenal woman, very familiar to many of us, Mrs. Ifoma Idigbe. Mrs. Ifoma Idigbe is an independent consultant. She's also a financial and business analyst, a founding trustee 
of WIMBIS and a founder of Boys to Men Foundation. She is also a published author. Please join me in welcoming Mrs. Ifoma Idibe. Round of applause, please. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ijama, for that introduction. Phenomenal woman. It reminds me of my Angelou's poem, Phenomenal Woman. Um, let me also thank all of you for joining us um, on this webinar. Ever since I found out I was going to moderate this uh, webinar, it's as if the universe has conspired to bring to my attention many more instances of sexual and uh, gender-based violence. One of the flyers said, we say stay at home and be safe, but what if home is where she feels unsafe? It appears the vulnerable are not safe anywhere. And it just made me shocked, saddened, and infuriated. Having said that, I find that society is often overly concerned with the superficial, with the appearance of things, how polite we are, how well we do in life, what people can see. We worry about the use of swear words, those four-letter words we raise our eyebrows at, like the S word and the F word. We tell our children they're bad words, don't say them. But there are other four-letter words we say out loud without interrogating the deeper meaning and the ramifications of what they imply. These are the words that threaten our common humanity. Rape is a four-letter word that denotes violent action, unwanted, unasked for. It's the most prevalent form of sexual violence. Slap, beat, kill are all four-letter words, also denoting violence, unsolicited, unwarranted, physical violence common in domestic settings. Sexual and other forms of violence are often gender-based or targeted at vulnerable groups. Gender-based violence is directed at individuals based merely on their biological sex or gender identity, and the victims are mostly women, the female gender. Let's talk about one more four-letter word, pain. Pain is the outcome of these four-letter violent action words. It's also a four-letter word. Pain can be physical, emotional, psychological, and non-physical pain is often the deepest, the most difficult to overcome. Only those who have experienced these words as actions, either directly as survivors or indirectly as friends and family, as well as the doctors, lawyers, and advocacy groups that support them truly grasp the horror they represent. Let me quote the Norwegian foreign minister in Ericsson Sorayde. Sexual and gender-based violence destroys people it destroys local communities, and it is extremely difficult to mend the damage. That's why we have to do more to prevent it. Her words speak directly to our theme today. Take a stand. Say no to sexual and gender-based violence. So with these sobering words, I'd like us to watch a video and then also listen to Tsutilakwe Shonuga, an award-winning poet, writer, and performer, as she performs her spoken word. So we'll watch a short video that speaks to the theme that we're talking about today, and then we'll listen to Titi, Lola, to Titi Lokwe. Thank you. No! I don't want to. I don't want to anymore. Ha! His fans will drag you on social media. He said I should close my eyes and begin to pray. Then he touched me. Ha! Plus, Daddy. Please, please, I don't want to. Come on, be quiet! How dare you accuse your father? Uncle, please, please. 
It's paining me. Shh, keep quiet. How can you say your uncle did that? He told me I know what to do if I'm in the room. Then we blacklist you. Oh God, I beg, I beg, I beg, man, I'm gonna kill me, I beg. Shut up! Are you saying my husband touched your dirty, smelling body? Uncle, I don't want the mineral biscuit again. Boys will always be boys. Husband or not, he raped me. Ah, uh, uh, you know, see my man, maybe. Eh? Please stop. I said stop. Uh, but what were you wearing, Steph? What a thought-provoking piece. I think I speak for everyone when I say that, indeed, we cannot and we will not be silent. We must amplify the conversations. Next off is a performance by award-winning writer and performer, Ms. Titi Lokwe Shonuga. Titi Lokwe Shonuga is a writer and performer whose work has graced stages and pages across the globe. Through her practice, she grasps for moments of tenderness and persistent joy at the intersection of blackness and womanhood. She's been very, very busy. She's the author of three collections of poetry, Down to Earth, Abscess, and This is How We Disappear. And she has also released two spoken word albums, Mother Tongue and Swim. Titi Lokwe is the writer of three plays, The Six, which is an intergenerational exploration of womanhood, Naked, a one-woman play, and Ada the Country, a musical. She has facilitated numerous youth and adult poetry workshops locally and internationally. Her writing has been translated into Italian, German, and Slovak. If we were live in person at this point, I would have said, could you give sort of a standing, you know, a round, resounding round of applause for Titi Lokwe whilst we say welcome. Thank you so much for the honor and privilege of being a part of this very timely 
conversation, one, one that I believe is long overdue. Uh, this poem is for the many ways that women have disappeared for generations. It is about a culture of silence that has ultimately failed us. It is for every time a woman has been asked, what did you wear? What were you doing there? What did you do to provoke him? It is also for the many ways that women have always come to our own rescue, for the ways that we emerge stronger and fiercer. It is about the magic of our survival and the ways in which we have forced the world to pay attention. So this is how we disappear. We fall backwards into our mother's mouths, become them, become the only stories we have ever been told, stories about women who stay, women who endure, women who offer their bodies into the belly of the beast to protect their children. This is how we go missing. We tumble into a fist, bones beaten to pulp. We crumble beneath the weight of a man with a hole in his chest and the vacuum takes us to a place where we are never enough, yet we are too much, our mouths too big, our bodies too whole, too soft, too much like God. So the wolves come, dragging the screeching bodies of little girls from their childhoods, folding our hearts into their mouths. They find us at work, at school, knees bent at the altar or on the dance floor. Whether we are a shy whisper or a loud joy, whether we are hips moving free or too small to carry the weight of it. Sometimes they come with a stranger's whisper. Often they come with names that we know well. We call them brother. We call them uncle. We call them friend. We call them on nights when the world feels too big. We ask for a shoulder to lean on but get a fist instead. Claws that peel our bodies open like ripe fruit for the taking. And we try to forget what we cannot forgive. We throw away our names, we shape shift, we code switch, we learn a whole new language for survival, teach it to our daughters too. But this time, we come back for our bodies, we come back for our voices, we gather the broken, we gather the split and scattered, anything that still has a pulse, even what is only a shadow of itself is still worth loving, everything that we paid for in our blood. Let it come, let it move with only the skin on its back. We do not look back, we do not turn to salt. This time we are the ocean. Come to reclaim everything that belongs to us and swallow anything that refuses to be moved. Ask about us, these women who reinvented joy, who snap back our broken bones to the rhythm of a survival song, a song about the audacity of living and loving anyway. We become a whole new kind of creature, something fearless and fierce, something bold enough to call down even lightning and dare it to touch us. So ladies, when the world unravels before you, when even your dreams are crumbling stones, when everything you dare to touch is set on fire and all around you is ash and smoke, remember this, Rock bottom is a perfect place for rebuilding. Remember that you are your mother's daughter, your grandmother's answered prayers, a whole bloodline of women who bend in response to raging winds. There is nothing broken here, nothing damaged or discarded. Each scar is a badge of honor, every misstep, a victory dance waiting to happen. You are a woman becoming. 
learning the complicated language of forgiveness, the intricate lessons of the universe, and your heart is just a muscle. It needs exercise. You were born for this sort of heavy lifting. You were born one part saint, one part warrior woman. Loving yourself without shame is the most important thing you will ever have to fight for so that centuries from now, when the archeologists shake the dust from your bones, let them wonder about this thing called courage. When they rearrange each part of you, hold you piece by piece against the light, give them something to marvel at. Let their history books say, here lies a woman who knew that fear is just a growling animal with no teeth. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, that was very emotive. Invisible, criticized, silent, never enough, in pain, vulnerable on every side. We must keep silent. We must not keep silent. Silent, no longer. Enough. And that's why we have to take a stand and say no to sexual violence and gender-based violence. Thank you very much. The video and the poem tell us that it's time, that we've suffered enough. And so we have a panel, four panelists, who play a pivotal role in fighting the war represented by our theme today. Take a stand, say no to sexual and gender-based violence. They represent what I like to think of as the cornerstones or the pillars without which we cannot win this war. And so I'd like to first introduce Dr. Kemi Da Silva Ibru, an obstetrician and gynecologist and public health physician. She's the founder of WARIF, Women at Risk International Foundation. She's at the front line, the first port of call victims, providing clinical and forensic services and also addressing social factors. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Kemi Da Silva Ibru. Now, physical trauma is the visible sign of violence. The invisible pervasive consequences of trauma are most often in the mind, in the emotions and the behavior that result from it. We therefore welcome a consultant psychiatrist and clinical psychologist, Professor Oluro Timi Koka. He's an associate professor of psychiatry at the Department of Behavioral Medicine of, of, of the College of Medicine, Lagos State University. He consults in the Department of Psychiatry at their teaching hospital. We welcome you, Professor Koka. To take a stand, we must have a robust legal framework. Without the law courts, government policies and other legislation, there's little deterrent and there can be no persecution. The legal system and supporting government organizations ensure we can pursue perpetrators, seek and obtain justice for victims who include survivors. They also provide the necessary environment to encourage reporting of these crimes. Representing this important cornerstone, this pillar, is Ms. Titilala Baibadeni, the merchant of hope, who is a lawyer and the coordinator of Lagos State's domestic and sexual violence response team. Thank you very much for being here, Lola. Now, representing the fourth pillar, the last cornerstone, but certainly not the least, is our conscience, representing civil society groups at the forefront of advocacy efforts already taking a stand and saying no. Mrs. Josephine Efachukuma is the founder of Project Alert on Violence Against Women, a non-governmental women's rights organization she founded 21 years ago, which is involved in creating awareness, advocacy, and providing support to survivors. We thank you all for accepting to speak. Thank you very much to all of you for joining us. Now, 
there seems to be a broad definition of sexual and gender-based violence, which keeps expanding. And I think a good place to start our conversation is to ask each panelist to define them in terms of, in, that reflects their own knowledge and their experience. We can then perhaps come to an understanding, a broad understanding, and, true, and have certain words that for us resonate. And so I'd like to invite Mrs. Kemi da Silva Ibru, who is a doctor and um, the first port of call, as it were. What would your medical definition be, particularly recognizing physical and emotional harm? Um, well, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Mrs. And thank you very much for having me. I think when we think of gender based violence, we have to remember that this is a phenomenon that's deeply rooted in gender inequality. And so this is violence that's directed, uh, directed at another based on just one simple gender. It occurs with both men and women, but because women are typically the more vulnerable group, it is usually interchangeable with violence against women. When you talk about gender-based violence, you're looking at a family unit, you're looking at a community, and you're looking at a society. And so it's an act on a behavior without the person's consent. And it can include all threats of violence, as well as any deprivation, whether it's finances or even one's freedom. It is usually, if not at all, likely to result in a physical, sexual, or even a psychological injury or harm to the survivor. The most pervasive form of gender-based violence that we're familiar with is rape. And as we know, rape affects all women and men, regardless of race, class, culture, or social and cultural status. The magnitude of gender-based violence in Nigeria, our statistics would tell us that one in two would have had a first-time sexual encounter between the ages of 15 and 19. We talk about one in four girls or one in 10 boys before the age of 18 experiencing at least one violent sexual encounter. And if we're to expand the age to include women, and we say between the ages of 15 and 49, we're looking at one in 14. So gender-based violence is certainly prevalent. It's certainly a national crisis, and it's certainly something that we need to continue in terms of having a conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Dr. Ibru. Um, I'd like to ask um, Professor Coker, um, because um, how would you define it, given its invisible effects on the human mind, which eventually find expression in human behavior? Professor Coker. Okay, thank you very much for having me and the executive committee of WIMBIS for this very apt topic that is actually has escalated during this pandemic. Uh, the gender-based and sexual violence, any acts, threats, or any attempt of any form of sexual violence, be it verbal, physical, or psychological, that can result in psychological or physical health challenges to the victim. I'm concerned because the psychological, the emotional, and the mental health aspects of gender-based violence are not known especially to the medical officers or other doctors. And these people, I mean, those that suffer this kind of violence, have them in them and they, they grow with them and they suffer from uh, mental disorders that could also grow along with them when they become adults. So it's very pertinent that we talk about the emotional, the psychological and mental health of victims of the gender-based and sexual violence. 
Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Coker. Um, Josephine, the social fallout expands the definition beyond direct victims. How would you define it for effective advocacy? Well, thank you very much, Joma, um, for that. Um, I'll start by, it's very simple, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it down. There was a research we did some years ago in the very early years of Project Alert, where we went down to the grassroots level to talk to women on their understanding of what um, violence against women or um, gender-based violence is. Just like um, Kemi said, um, the two I use them interchangeably, violence against women, gender-based violence, with gender-based violence giving it a broader um, definition to accommodate, you know, um, cases of um, um, violence against the male gender, though predominantly it is women. And the women at the grassroots, one woman said, I will never forget that. She said, now those bad, bad things, what then they do to women because we be women? Those bad, bad things. And then you asked her, what was those bad, bad things? Yeah. Man go die, then go tell him, then go say, now woman kill him. No man, they die normal death. Now woman must kill him. You know, even if in plane fall from sky, now woman kill him. Even if na cancer herself, the woman, they carry him up and down. Now the woman kill him. You know, so those things, those acts of violence targeted at individuals or a group of people because of the agenda, you know, and then, of course, the sexual violence is of a sexual nature. And all of this, are made possible because of you know structures and institutions in society and also the whole issue of patriarchy i mean we're going to i'm sure we're going to go further down to that so when you think of patriarchy which is basically the rule of the man you know that's what gives it's all about power and control power and control you know and that is why a young boy would want to chase a girl or you know and the girl says no and he says who are you to i mean you can't say no to me who are you you know, I must have you, you know, and that I must have you is that I will do anything to have you, including raping you, including whatever I need to do. Thank you very much, Josephine. So Lola, what's the legal definition? What does the law look for before they recognize that an assault has taken place and, and um, are also in a position to prosecute it? Because for example, psychological harm, is difficult to determine, like Professor Coker has said, how can we prosecute sexual and gender-based violence? Taken into, um, um, into consideration, these definitions that the first three um, speakers have given. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, so sexual and gender-based violence is basically any form of violence that is targeted at um, somebody because of their gender. And you can take different forms. It can be physical, emotional, verbal, sexual, or harassment. I think physical is quite straightforward because that in itself is an assault. It's a crime under the law. But as you rightly said, emotional violence is a bit tricky because how do you prove it? But the law is actually very clear, especially the Protection Against Domestic Violence Law 2007, which states the different forms um, of violence that can basically be somebody can actually seek redress for. A person experiencing violence can actually approach the court and request for you know, support or restraining orders against an abusive partner. So the law in Lagos actually foresees um, the fact that a person can actually experience emotional violence. It's not just people that are experiencing physical violence that have um, recourse to approach the courts. But I think ultimately for me, um, I would say gender inequality is at the heart of sexual and gender-based violence. It is because of gender inequality. That is why we have the different forms of um, violence that you know, comes to the fore. 
And it's because of this that we continue to see SGBVs thriving in our society. Thank you very much. So if I want to just pull together what you've talked about, essentially gender inequality promotes sexual violence because it's rooted in inequality. And there are words that you've used, all of you, an act, behavior, threat, harassment, and it has physical, psychological, and emotional um, um, consequences. Then um, Josephine talked about the social structures and institutions that support it um, by being based on patriarchy. And so having defined um, sexual and gender-based violence using all these words, what kind of people commit these acts? Who are the kind of people who do these things? How can we understand their motivations, the risk factors that may be at the root of what they're doing? Uh, Professor Koka, I'd like you to start because you're a psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist as well. Perhaps you'll give us an insight into the minds of people who do these things. Much. Uh, the men who commit gender-based violence are very, just like men vary, and they can be anybody, can be the average guy on the street a teacher, a lecturer, a pastor, imam, a driver, your guard, can be anybody. So we cannot categorize them and straightjacket them into a category. However, they all have certain things in common. With regards to mental health, they could be narcissistic. That is, they are self-centered and they only believe in themselves and they don't care about other people. Some are sadists, they enjoy inflicting pain in women. Obviously, some are also psychopaths. That is, they are highly antisocial in their personality and attitude. However, again, if you look at those that rape people or those that commit gender-based violence, they are men with low self-esteem, low self-confidence. They are men that have been ridiculed by girls and women when they were growing up especially in the secondary school and university days. They believe that the handsome boys have it all. And of course, drug addicts, those who are dependent on psychoactive substances, and those people with severe mental health disorders, I say severe here, people who are experiencing bipolar disorder, most especially mania, schizophrenia, and other psychotic conditions. Then we have a condition we call the paraphilias in mental health. Paraphilias are those that have the tendency, the urge to have sexual, uh, they have a sexual impulse and they want to commit it. And until they commit the act, they won't feel well. Here we have the peeping tombs, also called the uh, called voyeurism, that they enjoy looking at women having their baths, they enjoy women changing their clothes. They will have the flashers, also called the exhibitionists, and the pedophiliacs, those who enjoy having sex with young girls, and of course, those that have an incipient dementia or head injury. These are the categories of people that may actually commit gender-based violence and rape girls. And of course, again, coming back to school, those have been rejected by girls that cannot, what we call, toast girls. Opportunists, the impulsive people that they just see this very um, vulnerable girl, sexually dressed, and then who has taken some alcohol and they take the opportunity to rape her. Then we have, we have the women haters 
who actually want to humiliate and degrade women at all times. And most importantly, in the university, we have the ignorant young boys who actually, they are naive about their acts. And a story that was carried out recently changed the nomenclature to, have you had sex without consent with your girlfriend, with girls? And the answer was yes. And then when the nomenclature was also changed to, have you actually raped any girl? Um, the respondent said no. So these are the mindset, the motivation, the risk factors of those that are likely to commit gender-based violence, including rape. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lola, because you deal, because of the, uh, the organization that you had, the legal state um, government organization you had, and the fact that you're a lawyer, what kind of people do you see that commit these things? In, in, in the ordinary people that come and talk to you, what kind of people do you see when you're, when you're looking at them and you're talking to them, or if they're explaining or trying to justify what they did, what kind of people are these? They're regular people. Hmm. <laughs> They're just regular people. Um, when we look at domestic violence, we've been privileged to meet um, people that have been accused of um, perpetrating domestic violence. Some of them look very calm, very cool. You know, they act like they can't hurt a fly. You know, they blame. There's a common indicator. There's always there's always blaming the victim. They blame the victim, just like Mrs. Efachikuma said, for everything. It's never their fault. They are never to blame. The problem is with their um, the person that they are abusing. And you know, just to corroborate what Prof said, in 2016. The DSVLT, we wanted to know um, plausible factors. Why, why do people actually commit um, yeah. the offense of rape or yeah. sexual assault? And so we're able to partner with the Nigerian Correctional Prison Service, as they were referred to then. And we're able to engage 140 sex convicts. Um, these are people that are currently serving time for offenses ranging from rape, defilement, sexual assault, and penetration, and sexual assault itself. And our findings were quite remarkable. We found out that 80.5% of the people we sampled said they had been abused by the age of six. And unfortunately, they did not receive psychosocial support and they started to abuse others. We also found out that 60% were gainfully employed. So that debunked the myth that it's only people that are idle, people that don't have, that don't have any source of livelihood that perpetrate these vices. We also found out that a majority of them were under the influence of alcohol, and 10% of them were under the influence of hard drugs. We also found out that at least 40% um, were hooked on pornography. Uh -huh. And so it just showed uh -huh. that pornographic materials um, is a major factor in, yeah. in telling whether a person may sexually abuse another person. We found out that 65% of the sex convicts said they had become sexually active by the age of 14. Okay. Um, Unfortunately, they did not receive psychosocial support, so they did not know that, you know, this was not right. Um, a key, some key factors, just to corroborate what Prof said, in the people we sampled that were serving time for defilement, so people that had been convicted for sexually assaulting children, was low self-esteem, um, impotency, and the, 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 the sense of no self-worth, basically. It was a key factor for across um, the, the people serving time for the offense of defilement. And then we also found out that 
there was low, le low level of awareness about these biases. Some thought that you could equate it with stealing. You know, so they thought that, okay, they would just, you know, maybe they'll do one year, two years, and that would be it. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. in Lagos, it, these offenses um, carry up to life imprisonment. Mm -hmm. For me, one of the major highlights for me was the fact that none of them, none of the sex convict samples said it was the mode of dressing, it was what the, the victim wore that made them commit the act. So it just debunked that myth, you know, yes. that, you know, it's not about dressing. Sexual violence is about power, it's about control, it's not about yes. sex. When yes. we talk about sex, when we talk about mode of dressing, we, 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 we digress. We're not focused on the issues. Um, as regards domestic violence, finally, we noticed again, low self-esteem. We also noticed that children who had witnessed intimate partner violence growing up, there was a high likelihood for them to perpetrate violence in the future. And so we have at least 60% of abusers that come into the office say, if they are vulnerable enough and honest enough, say that they had witnessed violence growing up. And so this is what they saw growing up. They don't know any better. So they take it into marriage and begin to exhibit such violent traits if they are having conflict with their spouses. Okay, thank you very much. It's really frightening because you see, when, when I listen to yourself and um, Professor Coker, what it means is that literally every other person we see on the street could be a perpetrator has the potential to be, because they're regular people, they look like everybody else. And we never know, we have to peel back the layers in people's minds or their psyches to understand what it is they can do. And so we've talked about the kind of people who do these sorts of things, um, voyeurism, flashes, exhibitionists, pedophilia, impotency, a lack of understanding of what they're doing, exposure to sexually explicit media, rejection, all of those things. But what about the society that props them up. When Josephine was talking about the definition, she talks about the uh, social structures and institutions and talks about patriarchy. So Josephine, would you like to tell us about what you found to be the social or community factors that lend to these things happening? And also if you can address the impacts of COVID-19, um, particularly with the lockdown. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, um, like I started saying, um, the whole issue of patriarchy um, plays a key role because patriarchy is all about the rule, I mean, the rule of men. You see, basically a girl, a girl child grows from the, 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 the hands of the father to the hands of the brother, to the hands of the husband, to the hands of the son. You know, you just pass down like that, you know, because you even see women who, when their sons are speaking, mothers in their 60s and 70s, they are too afraid to even say anything to their sons, you know. So with that in mind, then you have structures and institutions in society. This informs those structures. This patriarchal thinking, uh, um, ideology and whatever, informs the structures and institutions, be them law enforcement, be them even the family, be them religious institutions, you know, whereby, you know, the woman has to continue praying. You keep praying. The man is, is going out doing all sorts of things. You keep praying for him. You know, I remember this film, um, uh, uh, is it War Room or what they call it? Yes. You know, women, uh -huh. you know, just keep praying. Now we tell people you can't pray domestic violence away, no matter how much you pray, you know? And then they tell you, oh, a good woman builds a house, a what, 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 what? And then you go to Ephesians 5.22, oh, woman be submissive and all of that, you know? And then you come to the family, the role of a, a, good, a good child belongs to the father. A bad child is see your son, see your daughter. Eh? See your daughter. It's no more ours. It's now yours. You own that child exclusively because that child is bad. 
you know, and then you go to law enforcement agencies. Of course, the policemen and women are products of this society, you know, uh, with patriarchal thinking. And then they are just, what well, the difference is just that uniform they are wearing, but their mindset and their thinking is all part of it. Woman, what do you do now? Maybe your mouth's too, maybe your mouth's too rough, you know? Maybe you deny your gas sex. Eh? Just go, just go and, just go and calm down, calm down. And then, um, everything will be okay, you know, and all of that. And this played out a lot during the COVID. I mean, the only issue of COVID-19 was, really was really annoying and embarrassing. Because, yes, you know, we, uh, uh, the first case of um, COVID was in February in Lagos, and then it, it was moving on. And then Nigeria just said, oh, just like everything that is happening in, I mean, around the world, lockdown is the first option to try and contain the virus. And that was done without thinking about several other things, you know, palliatives, and the fact that a lot of women could actually be locked in with the enemy, locked in. And what we saw, we service providers, um, DSVRT, Lola can testify, Kemi can testify to that. Within 10 days, like Project Alert, within 10 days, from seven cases a week we usually get in the office, within 10 days, 26. Within 10 days, bombarding our email, bombarding our social, our Twitter, um, uh, uh, Instagram and all of that. Women crying out for help. Fear on three fronts. Fear of the virus, hunger, violence, you know, everything all at once, you know. So, and then, you know, so when people say COVID-19, COVID-19 did not bring about sexual and domestic and, and gender-based violence. It only just brought, it just exposed, it basically exposed our nakedness. Let me put it that way. It exposed that problem that already had been there, which, you know, uh, a lot of um, lip service and ridiculing and, and uh, uh, playing around with it has been going on. COVID-19 just brought that out. And we could see a lot of women dying, a lot of women crying out in their homes, seeking help. You know, on a normal good day to get help is a problem. Then you can imagine in a lockdown situation, you know, how do you go about? How, where do you start from? And for us service providers, it was a big problem because Lola can uh, testify to that. We were not considered essential services. So when um, passes were being given, we were not given. So for the first 10 days, we could not even move around. We all had to start running. Kemi is aware of it. We all had to start scrambling, you know, where can we get? Project Alert, eventually we got through uh, <laughs> uh, Minister of um, um, Agric or so, through the food chain, uh, palliative, whatever, and then we're able to move around and try to respond. So structures, patriarchy, culture, tradition, religion, all of those things just gang up, you know, to suppress women. Okay, thank you. Um, so um, culture, the social environment, religion. Now, Kemi, I know that um, uh, you have interacted with the policemen, um, these so-called uh, law enforcement people. And um, as uh, Josephine has just said, they are also influenced by culture, the social environment, and, and religion. What has your experience been? And how does, that, how does it further define the difficulty of operating within these social and cultural constructs? Kemi? Is, is Kemi there? Yes, can you hear me now? I think I've been on yes. mute. Yes. So I was about to say, um, 
pretty much exactly what Josephine was stating about living in a patriarchal country. I mean, traditionally, we know that Nigeria is a patriarchal country, and we know that women are placed in that stereotypical role of being subordinate to men. So already that inequality is present, even if she's not sexually or physically violated. And this is certainly encouraged by our cultural norms and practices. So in our homes, you have scenarios where women are subordinate to her husband or her father or her male relative, like Josephine stated, because of these power dynamics. And then you also have to remember that many of these women are socialized from a very young age to believe that they are less than their male counterparts. And so therefore, they actually feel powerless. And that also hinders their ability in making the right choices. And so the presumption that, oh, well, if you're in a situation of abuse, you can get out, doesn't necessarily apply to her. Another factor that ties in, and um, this is where the police and the um, impact of the police force may come in, is society's attitude towards survivors of rape and sexual violence. There is stigmatization and there is social bias. And the woman is made to feel guilty about the abuse. She's made to carry the guilt of the perpetrator. And so many a time she's survivor shamed. She's asked those stereotypical questions of, well, where were you and what were you wearing and what time of the day was it? And I say this all the time, statistically, the highest percentage of rape is in the afternoon. It's not in the middle of the night. And so these perpetrators continue with impunity because our environment becomes permissive. We allow this rape culture to continue and we don't give her a safe space to come forward and speak her truth. When you talk about the COVID outbreak, um, I mean, COVID-19, we first heard about it earlier in the year. About 90 countries at some point instituted the mandatory lockdown. So we had like 2.6 billion people sitting at home to stem the spread of the virus. And it works. I mean, as a precautionary measure, it was effective. Countries that mandated a lockdown, their curves flattened. Countries that opened up their economies, unfortunately, they saw an increase in numbers. But along with that lockdown, unfortunately, came that shadow pandemic that Josephine was discussing, where we started to see an increase in the number of cases. And so we had women, girls, and children confined at home with their abusers. And sadly, prior to the pandemic, the numbers already were massive. We were looking at 250 million people globally that were already subjected to one violent form of a violent encounter or the other. And now we're dealing with numbers as high as 20% in terms of surges. And this precarious environment that women find themselves in, locked in with their abusers, um, these are volatile environments that you know, typically would have a, a history of abuse. And so now you have the added anxiety and frustrations of health and financial insecurities. Again, we look at data and we don't have accurate data because it's an ongoing phenomena. But already, we're already seeing data coming in. We have the Federal Ministry of Women's Affairs telling us 3,600 cases were reported. We have at Warriff, in the first two weeks of the lockdown, like Josephine said, we had a 64% increase in the number of calls being made to us. And 72% of them were women locked in with their abusers. We were seeing with our online surveys, 80% increase in women that were asking for assistance. 
And interestingly enough, 32% of them were saying, oh, it's because of the financial problems that my husband was dealing with, not addressing the issue as it were. So um, police, well, they recorded 717 cases. So again, they were constrained, as many of us were. Josephine alluded to the essential services and the challenges that we had. And I believe those challenges also contributed to the increase in the cases that we saw. Okay, thank you very much. Um, putting together what you've said, yourself and Josephine, I'd say that you're saying essentially that patriarchy really uh, makes women really vulnerable because of the social and, and cultural constructs that implied and the fact that the institutions are based on, on these things. And then you've added the dimension of um, the responsibilities we give to men um, to, to provide. And that's something that, um, for a different conversation, the idea that uh, men have to provide for, for everybody. Um, but anyway, um, I'd like to focus more specifically on sex, sexual violence, because it's the most prevalent form of gender-based violence and abuse, particularly rape. Now, the World Health Organization says that rape is considered the most traumatic, pervasive, and most common human rights violation, often underreported and a neglected area of research for which deeper understanding is required. And all the things you've said honestly tie into this. This is like a sentence that summarizes what you have said. It's underreported, it's neglected. We don't have enough information. The things we know cover such a broad area, it's difficult to identify possible perpetrators. If you could identify them, you'd be able to avoid them, is the truth of the matter. But I'd like each of you, so what are the many faces of sexual violence? Um, it shows in many things, prostitution, whatever. What are the many faces of sexual violence? And I'd like each of you to speak briefly um, to that. Um, Josephine, I'd like you to start that conversation because you're advocating. And um, as an advocate, I would like to believe that there's a broad range of of people that you're advocating for because you understand the broad range of challenges that are, are being faced. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, um, oftentimes when people talk of sexual violence, um, what you just hear people say all the time is rape, rape, rape. And I just said rape is just at the extreme uh, end of the, of, of the chain. You know, it starts with sexual abuse, indecent touch, you know, especially as it relates to children, yeah. you know, um, 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 indecently exposing your, your private part, wanting a child to touch you, you know, telling a child to give you a blowjob, telling a child yeah. to uh, watching pornographic films, mm -hmm. sexual harassment, both in the workplace or in school, mm -hmm. you know, and a wide range. So starting from different forms of sexual abuses, you know, to the actual act of, you know, raping. In the workplace, you have um, uh, um, sexual harassment, like I said, where colleagues of, in schools, you know, would try all sorts of things. You pass someone, pats your butt, or, 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 or touches your, 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 your breast, or something like that. But this, uh, this all constitutes sexual violence, you know, and it can affect more of girls, but increasingly we have seen a lot of boys, you know, being um, victims. Of sexual abuse, you know, and that's why it's uh, it's 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 good that the the the, the VAP Act, the Violence Against Persons Prohibition Act, that was passed in 2015, broadened the definition of uh, of rape. You know, uh, moved it away from just vaginal penetration uh, with the uh, with, with 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 the penis to other orifices, including the mouth, the anus, and then the use of bottles or anything. You know, so that's, 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 that's the broad range. 
Uh, Lola, what would you contribute? What are the many faces that you've seen in, in trying to um, prosecute or trying to do something on a government level? Okay, um, I, would, I think I would like to zero into child sexual abuse. I'm, I'm zeroing into child sexual abuse because majority of the cases that we see on, um, related to sexual violence are actually done against children. We have a couple of rape and um, sexual assault done to a person above the age of 18, but majority of the cases are sexual violence against children. And if I leverage on the statistics from the Mirabel Center, um, the Mirabel Center in the past seven years has attended to over 5,500 survivors. Majority of their survivors are actually children. Um, we find out that when we, maybe when we receive the files sent by the, from the police stations, or where we have interactions with the clients or the parents of the clients, we find out that some of these vice, some of these incidents could actually have been avoided. They could have been avoided. Um, we could have reduced the chances of it happening in the first place. We found out that familiarity, people are overly familiar with neighbors, um, security guards, bus, school bus drivers, people that statistics have shown um, are key perpetrators of child sexual abuse. We also found out that a lot of children are not empowered with information. Looking at this from a preventive perspective, a lot of children are not armed with information as to their body parts, the fact that all, every part of their body is private. They are not armed with information on how to set boundaries, how to say no, how to speak up and inform um, a primary caregiver, especially when the caregiver is not an offending parent. We also found out that pedophiles generally prey on children that are neglected. Neglect is truly at the heart of child abuse. Children are already vulnerable. How much more a child that is neglected? Um, and so I think we need to um, do a lot more in terms of our engagement with children. The law even foresees that children have a responsibility to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we need to empower children on signs to look out for. We're not, prevent, we're not telling them how not to get whipped, no. Mm -hmm. We're just empowering them with information, with mm -hmm. instilling them with the right um, values, letting mm -hmm. them know that if any situation is uncomfortable, they should be able to speak up and speak out so that we can mm -hmm. prevent the process of grooming. There is a process that happens before a child is sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The child is groomed, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we're able mm -hmm. to prevent that process from happening, then we mm -hmm. may just have prevented the child mm -hmm. from being abused. Finally, mm -hmm. there is a very worrisome trend, and that is child-to-child -child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. It's so heartbreaking. You hear seven-year-old boy defiled two-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. Eight-year-old girl sexually mm -hmm. assaulted five-year-old boy. And you begin to wonder where mm -hmm. are these children seeing this? Mm -hmm. Where are they picking up these behaviors mm -hmm. from? Mm -hmm. You know? And I think we mm -hmm. need to really focus on this as well, because that is literally a time bomb that is ready, that may explode any time from now. 
Thank you, Lola. What you're saying is so true because you consider that children become adults. And if we don't take care of the children, they become abusers themselves. You have all already said that today. So children who are abused become abusers and it becomes a cycle, a terrible cycle of violence. Uh, Professor Coco, would you like to add to this? because of the of the of the of what happens to them also in their minds and their belief systems thank you very much if anybody at all male or female experiences uh, sexual violence as you had the definition it's extremely traumatic and we, if we don't have the psychological intervention at that point in time it can lead to further mental health disorders as the child grows up now look at the child that had penetrative type of rape with objects, with bottles. I mean, can you imagine the kind of uh, mental health experience the person will have? Or the statutory rape where you have sex with a minor. Recently, there was this news that um, an old man had a sex with two-year-old kind of two-year-old girl. We had news three-year-old. So what kind of person would try to rape a two-year-old girl? And of course, we had the date rape. Uh, Cynthia, not too long ago, died while uh, being raped with that uh, psychoactive substances. Now we talked about marital uh, sex, uh, uh, gender mm -hmm. violence, and we're talking about patriarchy. I'm sure at uh, the DSRT, men to have gone there to complain that they have been abused by their wives. So because in Nigeria today, nobody's talking about male rape, where boys, and men are being raped. Also, now because of the women empowerment that we have in Nigeria, in any family where the woman is um, economically empowered more than the husband, there's likely to be an abuse too. So we, we are seeing cases where men actually break down psychologically and mentally because of the abuse from their spouses. Uh, so there's a lot of public education and advocacy that needs to be carried out in this country to prevent the mental health and psychological health of victims. Thank you. Thank you very much. Kemi, I'd like to ask you to, to, to add to this because um, you see a lot of women uh, who come to you and there are different reasons for which they come. All of them, sexual violence and um, gender-based violence, which are interchangeable words anyway. So like you said, we do have at Warren Center um, a, a, different groups of women and young girls that we see. I mean, the youngest we've seen is under the age of two and the oldest is 68. And um, when we talk about the definition of sexual violence, um, as rightly said, it is unwanted sexual activity, but without consent. I mean, very quickly, the issue of consent is so relevant when we talk about these um, different terminologies. I mean, consent, my favorite acronym is FRIES, as in French FRIES. It has to be freely given. It has to be reversible, informed, enthusiastic, and specific. And it certainly has to be given by a consenting adult. The different faces of sexual violence, as Professor Coco said, I mean, it happens to men. That's another um, aspect of sexual violence we don't spend a lot of time discussing. We do um, discuss rape because it is one of the most perversive forms. But we also have intimate partner violence when it's targeted just by a partner. We have multiple perpetrators, so we've seen cases of gang rape. Mm -hmm. We've seen different forms of date rapes with um, the drug-facilitated sexual assaults. There's the sexual exploitation with professionals. You could go and see a medical physician, a dentist, an anesthetist that would put you under. There are also prison rapes that we sometimes hear about. 
Then how about rape as a tool of warfare? Sometimes we have that. Mm -hmm. And the less pervasive forms that we see, sexual harassment in the workplace, for instance, unwelcome verbal and physical forms of um, acts of um, sexual um, in nature, excuse me. And then, of course, there are the unusual ones, very quickly, like the secret filming of images that um, Mrs. I, you and I talked about briefly yesterday. Molka, the scene where you're filming women on the street or in public areas without their consent. So at the center, we have seen various forms of violence. Lola is right, 78% of the cases we see are minors. Sadly, the largest percentage is under the age of 12. Child sexual abuse is an area that we need to spend more time focusing on. Thank you. So, so um, we owe children a responsibility um, because they can't say no for themselves. They don't understand what's going on. And I think parenting, community parenting as well, because it used to be a community thing and looking out for children becomes very important, just listening to, to what you've all said. But I just wondered, and, and maybe I should ask um, Josephine, this is a side question, about forced abortion and baby factories. Are those, have you, are those things that you've encountered as, um, part yes, of, as a form of sexual violence? Yes, we do see that a lot. We do see that a lot. Um, um, the case, lots of cases of um, baby factories, you know, young people, some of them are deliberately groomed. Some, we actually, we, got, we had a case some years ago from Imo State of a young girl who was raped and the family said that since it was a cousin or so that raped the child and the family she was living with, they didn't have a child, they kept that young girl to give birth to that child in order to bring a child for this family that didn't have a child. So using, I mean, overlooking, glossing over the rape that actually happened to this young girl who was like 16 years at that time, you know, and then uh, 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 nursing her or putting her away somewhere to get, to give birth to this baby so as to take this baby from her, you know, and take over this child. So we've seen quite a, I mean, a few of that, and it's 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 quite it's it's something that is happening around. And um, if one doesn't pay some attention to that, it could just go unnoticed. Thank you. Now, listening to all of you, what I hear is that there's a psychological aspect of of um, of rape, of sexual violence, intimidation, um, power and control, subjugation. There's the cultural side of it the sexual harassment of women and traditional practices, which include arranged marriages, by the way, and um, female genital mutilation. There's a religious side where we have arranged marriages. And of course, there's the financial side, um, the baby factories, even prostitution, um, which means that for every gamut of the human experience, there's sexual violence. This is frightening. And a number of you have made reference to sexual violence um, against men um, because we tend to focus on sexual violence against women because victimhood appears incompatible with masculinity. Uh, the big strong man who can do everything. How can he be a victim? How can somebody rape a man? You know? But this is, this is gender bias in itself. It's discrimination against men. So what forms do sexual violence against men take? I'd like to ask Lola, to talk about that, because I would like to believe that because you're a formal reporting organization supported by government finance, 
asked by government, a government institution, that you will have men coming to report to you. Is Lola still on? Okay, yes, yes, yes. We do have um, men coming to report. Um, during the lockdown, we actually received two cases from two um, primary health care centers reporting that two young boys had been, one had been gang raped and the other one had been sodomized by a neighbor. So it is happening. It is a reality. Boys actually do get raped. Boys do get sexually assaulted. But if we look at the statistics, I'll, um, maybe I'll start from 2016. We had a total of 450 people report. Um, out of the 450, we had 14 males reports um, mostly domestic violence. That number more than doubled in 2017, where we had a total of 1,044 reports. And out of 1,044, we had 141 males this time report um, incidents of domestic violence. Um, and then in 2018, it increased again to 159. Now, based on the statistics that made it possible, it's good to work with data and not just speculate. Most of the reporting that we get from men is really domestic violence. Domestic violence, i.e. they allege that um, their spouse has become physically abusive or they are experiencing verbal or emotional abuse. We actually had a case during the, the peak period of the pandemic, according to the, the male survivor, it was so much that he had to abscond, he had to flee from his matrimonial home because he really feared for his life. Um, so about, out of the um, cases that are reported in the office, about 20% are um, cases of child sexual abuse done to boys or done to, 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 to males. Males. Okay. Thank you, Professor Coker. Do men admit to sexual violence when they come and see you? Professor Coker, you're, you're muted. Yes, because of the patriarchal family system we talked about earlier on, uh, yeah. because of the gender norm, social attitudes, stigma, masculinity, boys and men, they, they often refuse to report that they've been abused sexually because of shame, guilt, and embarrassment. Because how can you tell your colleagues that I was gang raped or I was raped by some boys? And if it has to do with young boys, young boys are raped by elderly women through coercion, manipulation, mm. blackmail. And they, they, are, they are kind of one that if you tell anybody, we're going to deny you. And that's, there's no way the young boy will report that uh, yes. she was abused by an elderly woman. And when it comes to gang raping, it's now on the increase. When young men are gang raped by their colleagues or sodomized, and again, they feel so much shame and guilt that why should this happen to me? I'm supposed to be a man. I'm supposed to fight them. And the physical health and mental consequences are the same both in males and females. In physical health consequences, there could be use of weapon to attack this victim. Uh, there could be uh, physical violence with corollary injuries, rectal bruises or rectal tear, and there could be sexually transmitted diseases. And of course, we consider the mental health aspect of uh, this, this uh, gender-based violence. There will be anxieties, 
there could be symptoms of depression, which could lead also to hopelessness and worthlessness and contemplation of committing suicide. And yeah. there could have to be a suicidal attempt. So we need to also talk about this male rape, which is also on the increase in our society. I'm really happy, Professor Koke, that you've talked about that because that would have been my next question. The idea of the, the experience um, that, that people have, um, social con the, the consequences on them, whether mental, behavioral, and, and social. So you've talked a little bit about it. I'd like to ask um, Dr. Da Silva Ibru to, to talk about it as well, um, particularly with regards to the behavioral and social consequences that you see um, in victims, whether male or female. So like Professor Koko said, there's no fundamental difference with regards to the behavioral, the psychosocial, or even the emotional responses between a male and a female survivor. With the behavioral signs, these are typically signs that you see a little later. You might notice that the survivor is more withdrawn. Maybe she used to hang out with friends and she no longer wants to go out. She's lost interest or he's lost interest in previous um, things that they used to enjoy. Perhaps they're particularly tired. They might show signs of um, changes in their eating or their sleep patterns. Sometimes survivors take control back by controlling their eating patterns. So they may even start to exhibit signs of um, other eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia. Mm -hmm. There's certainly a sexual dysfunction and this adversely unfortunately affects a lot of their relationships. They certainly have difficulty trusting people. And when you look at the psychological side, this is where the post-traumatic stress disorder comes in. You know, they start to experience flashbacks. They might start to get nightmares and the severe anxiety that comes with that. The depression that Prof mentioned and the feeling of hopelessness, the suicidal ideation that sometimes happens. And then sometimes they just become forgetful. They lose focus. We call that a dissociation. They just suddenly are no longer present. When you look at the societal consequences, I mean, a direct societal consequence could be death and injury, as we alluded to, and this would then increase our maternal mortality rate. We talked about the HIV tests in um, seeing patients at the center because, of course, there might be an increased cases, um, increase in the cases of HIV and also other sexually transmitted diseases. When we look at children, we look at um, their poor performance in schools, for instance, and other problems that they may have. They may even start to self-harm and it may affect their personal development. We look at hospital costs and the related costs to other essential services. Sexual assault referral centers such as ours, we run not just the medical, but we also offer counseling. We also offer the legal assistance, shelter accommodation referrals, and all of these services we offer free. However, at the organization, it costs us an average of 66,000 Naira each time we see a beneficiary. And then when we look at the indirect costs, how about her loss of days because of the domestic violence and therefore her loss of earning? And then there's a the reduced productivity to the organization that she's working at. And economically, when we look at global trends, it costs 1.5 trillion US dollars to treat and look after violence against women across the globe. And with the COVID pandemic, we anticipate numbers are increasing so we can only imagine the economic support that would be needed to address that scale. Thank you. Professor Cook, I'd like to come back to you on this issue. Um, because you're a, a psychiatrist and clinical psychologist, I want to ask you, how do you treat them? How do you treat people who have gone through this sort of thing? What can you do 
And what would you also suggest that we do, if those of us who live with them? Thank you very much. I, I, it, studies have shown that if victims come early to the hospital, if they actually report to the authorities, they can actually get better, but because they would not, and that's why they suffer from um, long-term effects of the mental disorders. Uh, before I go into the intervention, I also want to add that pregnancy can be part of the rape, and also this condition we call a dyspareunia, that is painful intercourse, and some may have what we call virginismus as an adult, that is, any time they want to have sexual intercourse with their partners, the muscles of the vagina tighten up and they are not penetration. So these are also consequences of a rape. Now, um, once we have somebody, which I think they do in Mirabel and Warif as well, is that we have what we call the cognitive behavioral therapy. We actually try to look at the cognitive distortions, that is their thinking pattern, and also try to remove the, the self-blame, the behavioral self-blame and the character, uh, character self-blame that look, and the guilt feelings that they have. I would try to restructure their thinking pattern to remove the signs and the symptoms of observed behavioral uh, disorders. And in that manner, if, of course, it's more than a session, like uh, Kemi said, we could structure like four or five or six psychological sessions to have uh, cognitive distortion removed, to improve the self-esteem, self-worth of the individual, to remove the victim blame, secondary victim blame, and also bring back the self, the deflated self-esteem of the individual, and also rehabilitate the individual back to his usual, her usual self. So there are solutions if they can quickly report to the clinical psychologist or to the psychiatrist. Of course, I have to commend what Warif and Mirabel Center are doing. They are basically doing a job for us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Prof. Now let's address the elephant in the room, the culture of silence around sexual violence and the sense of embarrassment, embarrassment and stigmatization that, that promotes this culture of, of silence. Um, the video we watched um, showed it very clearly. The fact, ah, no, don't, you can't say that. Oh, don't say it. People shouldn't know, you know? And so it continues um, because women can't say it. And that's part of the reason why we're even having this webinar to stand up and say, no, we have to have people saying it happened. And so I'd like um, all of you to talk about this. How can we encourage survivors, witnesses, and others in the community to come forward? And then truly, how do you talk about incest, especially when a child is involved? Kemi, I'd like you to start on this one. I think when you look at the issues of the causes of the prevalence of gender-based violence in our society. I mean, we've spent some time discussing this already, so it's multifaceted. And so again, if we're going to look at how we break the silence, we have to adopt a multifaceted approach because this is indeed a systemic problem. So we have to look at all the areas that are an adverse impact on a survivor, and this is including a child, that would invariably one would have to navigate. We have to look at the home front, the awareness and education in the home, because many times it's recognized as a shameful act. And so she's made to now bear this shame in spite of the fact that this is a crime that has occurred. Then when we expand her circle of influence to include her friends, she gets the same message. There's no affirmation. So she can't speak out. She can't seek justice. And then if we carry on into the community, the survivor shaming continues. 
So we need to put a spotlight on the issue. We need to start looking at ways in which we can change this narrative. We have to adopt more measures. We have to bring more programs, both grassroots as well as in urban settings. We have to look at online campaigns, for instance. We all know the power of um, a hashtag. Look at the Black Lives Matter, look at the Me Too. Then essential services, again, that multifaceted approach. Do we have enough of them? Does she have any essential services close to her? Does she have a safe space that can help her heal? And then how about the platforms for her to come out? Are there platforms, social media blogs? Are there um, traditional platforms that she can come out and be believed? And then the lawmakers, Josephine spoke about the laws as well as Lola. We know our laws need updating, and I'm sure we'll probably spend some time talking about that later. We know our laws need harmonizing because if we cross the 36 different states, we have different laws that sadly we have to work under. And our law enforcement agents, you asked me about the police. Are we enforcing these laws? Are there enough um, convicted perpetrators? So if we're going to stand with her, even if she's an adult or a child, if we're going to say, how do we talk publicly about this phenomena? We have to demystify it. We have to stop whispering about it. We have to look it in the face, call it a violation, call it a crime, so it cannot continue to be permissible in our society. Thank you. Josephine, um, given your organization, Project Alert, um, would you like to talk about this, please? Yeah, um, well, uh, Project Alert from the very beginning, um, um, yeah, Project Alert from the very beginning, um, we've always talked about uh, breaking the silence. And um, actually, some years ago, we started a campaign on Stop the Blame because blaming and shaming constantly and consistently are the two reasons why these problems are going on. You know, people should never ask the questions like, what did you do? What were you doing there? You know, you immediately, you are actually moving the blame, moving the blame and the shame from the perpetrator and placing it at the feet of the, of, of the victim. And this even happens with children. Imagine someone telling a child of six years old, why didn't you shout? Why you not shout now? Why you enter there now? You know, and all of those things. So we must stop this blaming and shaming of victims, you know, and move the blame and the shame belongs to the perpetrators. You know, we have to, and when we say victims don't speak out, and I tell people, no, that's not true. Victims are speaking out. We are the ones, society is the one that hasn't got in place, you know, response systems, you know. For, yeah, DSVRT, how many people? Project Alert, how many people? How many DSVRTs are there even in Nigeria? And so on and so forth, you know. So it has to move from, everybody looking to one organization or one association to, I mean, just like what, um, uh, um, uh, what's her name? <laughs> you know, says that we all must be activists. We all must be activists. We all must be concerned about this, you know? So we must break the silence. We must be empathetic. For as long as we keep blaming victims, then why should I come and tell you about my victimization? If all you will tell me is, uh, but why, how did you, how did, because the primary victimization is the, is the act itself and the secondary victimization is the shame, the blame and the shame, and that has to stop. 
Okay, thank you. I'd like to, again, throw back to what um, yourself um, and uh, Lola said um, about the structure, um, patriarchy and the structures. If we're going to respond formally as a society, who is society? Where we are society. And so who determines how society goes? We have found that the men determine how society goes. And so it means that women's organizations have to be at the forefront of this. So Lola, tell me, how does government intend to progress this a step further formally? Okay, um, so I think looking at this, just as I think Dr. Kemi was the one that said it, we need um, a multi-sectoral approach in handling sexual and gender-based violence. We look, need to look at it from a prevention angle and response. Um, I think what government is, is doing, not just with DSWRT, but organi other organizations working in this space, is to ensure that we have survival-centered, we have a survival-centered approach. We want to increase um, victim or or victims, victim safety. We want people to be able to speak out, speak up. We want people to have access to toll-free lines. We want people to be able to walk into an office and report. We want to. We want people to have access to justice, um, access to justice, not just justice, i.e., prosecuting a case, but access to service providers and that's why we're looking at ensuring that healthcare we, people are able to receive support for medical support services at the community level we want whatever we do as government we don't have control over what happens before but once mm -hmm. people come into the system once people report once they make a call we want to believe that the whole referral pathway should be activated so that they are able to have a safe space where they can report, they're able to receive support services at no cost. Because a lot of the survivors we deal with are quite indigent. Some people that even before the lockdown coming into the office or even going to the, the SACs or even to the police station, sometimes they don't even have funds to return back to their homes. Mm -hmm. And so we have to ensure that they're proper, there's a robust um, um, support service for them, not just medical, psychosocial, but even as far as empowerment, yeah. um, I think from government as well, we need to increase offender responsibility. Sexual and gender-based violence continues to thrive because of impunity. People think they do it, people beg, they bring in the religion factor, they forgive, the perpetrator moves to another community. I say that Lagos is not filled with rapists. What we have is a lot of repeat offenders. People do it in the community, they, be, they beg, they, they move to another, and they keep doing it. Mm -hmm. They keep doing it, they keep, until one person says, you know what, I'm not going to allow this to, to continue, I'm going to report, I'm going to seek for justice. I don't think it should get to that. So yes. looking at what we can do as a people, when somebody reports to you, when somebody is courageous enough to speak their truth to you, how do you respond? Mm -hmm. We are quick to blame other people. We are quick to blame the responders, the police. But you as an individual, as a mother, your daughter tells you that she's experiencing domestic violence. How do you respond? Are you quick to blame as well? Or do you believe survivors and encourage survivors to, to, not to remain in abusive relationships, 
I speak about domestic violence now. A sexual violence, do you encourage them to keep quiet? It's a shame. Or do you encourage them to report? Even if it's just reporting to the health facility so that they are able to access care. And then if they report to a government hospital or a SAC, we believe that the whole welfare pathway is activated there and we can start to get justice. I think one of the greatest deterrents is convictions. The same way we read in the newspaper that so-so and so person was um, committed your offense, we should also see. And not too long, perhaps six months, this person has been sentenced to life imprisonment, 60 years, 25 years. So we begin to really change that culture. Okay, but I also want to ask, um, government organizations, there aren't so many of you dealing with this. Lagos State Government is, is at the forefront of a lot of these things. How do you even multiply the number of organizations that deal with it? How do you promote it across states at the federal level? How do you promote it within organizations and businesses? Because it's, it's legislation that's going to do this and policies. I know that um, you're going to, to, to answer a question about legislation and policy later on, but in terms of breaking the silence, what can government do in terms of legislation, policies that will encourage people you know, you have all these sorts of um, things like um, um, the people who, who, what is it, the whistleblower thing. Can you have that sort of thing that will encourage people to come forward, you know? Um, because it's, it's really very worrying because it seems to me as if all of you, the pillars, the four pillars on this conversation, really do not know the level of it. You see enough to know it's at a very high level but we cannot even begin to estimate the level. And the only way we can do that is to promote this idea of people coming forward and saying it. Is there anything you can do from a government perspective to filter this across organizations and businesses and just across society? So um, I think we're fortunate in Lagos because um, we've been able to achieve uh, modest achievements because of political will. We have the political will in Lagos to properly address these issues. We have the relevant laws, even before the VAT, since 2011, we've amended our criminal law to provide life imprisonment for the offense of rape. We also introduced what we refer to as modern rape, sexual assault and penetration, which also carries life imprisonment. We have the whistleblowing policy. It's for us in Lagos, it's called the mandated reporting policy, where we encourage um, mandated reporters, uh, good Samaritans to report um, cases of sexual and gender-based violence and being rest assured that, they are, that their identity remains, um, they remain anonymous. And then I think for me, moving, when you, you encourage people to report, right? So they report, what next? You encourage somebody experiencing domestic violence to, to leave their abusive environment, what next? I think this is where social, um, social services, social supports, social structures have to be in place so that we're able to not further traumatize the survivors that have been bold enough to report. And this is where the, the provision of shelter comes in. This is where we need to do robust um, mechanisms for empowerment. And you know, like in Lagos, we have the um, issue of women affairs and poverty alleviation that have different skills acquisition programs, uh, yeah. access to soft, soft loans and all of that to encourage, especially women who are experiencing violence, you know, to, if they decide to leave the abusive relationship, to be empowered. Because statistics have shown that if a woman is not empowered financially, there is a high likelihood that she will return to the violence. Bearing in mind 
that most of the survivors of domestic violence are financially dependent on the abuser. And so, yes, we need to create the relevant laws, we, rather we need to enact relevant laws to, to, to punish and to serve as deterrence. We also need to um, amplify our sex offenders register where we name and shame mm -hmm. convicted, um, convicted um, persons. And then more, more importantly, I think we need to do a lot more in terms of empowerment. How can we provide access to grants, access to soft loans, for, uh, for survivors of domestic and sexual violence so that they do not return to the place of abuse. Thank you. Professor Koka, um, I've left you for last because I'm saying um, because a man is a man and a man has been told by society he can't be talking about certain things, how do you think we can promote a culture of speaking out for men? Well, um, Lola has spoken a lot about the government, but I think the issue should start from the home. As she said, what if your doctor comes to say, mommy, I was raped at the party I went to, what would be your reaction? What would be your emotional reaction? Uh, because most parents will not react appropriately. They would even go and report. They want to keep it in the family because of the stigma and discrimination that follows what we know about rape. However, the, the, the child won't even go and report to mommy because the mommy that she wants to report to will kill her. And that is even much more difficult than money. So this individual believes that she's not motivated to go and report, number one, to parents, because she will not get the empathy. And if she reports, she's going to get hostility from the parents. She's going to get isolated from the society, ridiculed, shamed. And even if you go to the police, what next? Okay, you have reported. What next? So the issue of stigma and discrimination is up in society the primary victimization and the secondary victimization for example if the girl is a virgin and she now reports that she has been raped and the society will call her fairly used to kumbo of names like that and of course parents want to keep that in society so one of the communicate that should come out of this kind of uh, webinar is to reach out to governments to tell them on how to educate the public about prevention of the stigma and discrimination as i mean associated with gender-based violence especially rape and that will when for example you have three toll lines that this girl can actually call without telling the parents or without telling the police that look I've just been abused by this social source. This is mm -hmm. the address. Mm -hmm. Then girls can be motivated to come out and report and, and speak out. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. So what I hear really uh, us saying is that the home front is the critical part of call. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the people have to believe, um, survivors have to believe that they will be heard and that something will be done about it and that they're going to be encouraged before they can take the next step. And, and I think a really vital question that you have all asked is what next? And I think that what next is, is really critical. So um, again, um, um, Lola, I'd like you to, you've talked a bit about the existing policy and legal framework, um, but how easy is the prosecution of sex crimes? Does law enforcement provide the required support? And what about false accusations? Hmm. Okay, so I, I think I should just briefly give some context. So in Lagos, um, we have the criminal law of Lagos State that basically regulates all forms of 
all um, forms of criminal conduct. Mm -hmm. Now, with that law, we have Chapter 25 that talks about sexual offenses. So it provides for offenses like rape, the traditional rape done by a man against a woman or girl without her consent, and there must be sexual intercourse. It's life imprisonment. And then we have sexual assault by penetration. That's life imprisonment as well. Then we have attempts. A lot of people are not aware that even the mere attempt to commit rape or sexual assault is a crime punishable by up to 14 years imprisonment. And then we have sexual harassment, sexual assault, which are both three years. Um, last year, um, we were able to secure over 90 convictions, uh, budging, uh, 90 convictions of rape, defilement, and sexual assault by penetration. We had two life imprisonment judgments, oh. um, 60 years, 65 years, 25 years, and a couple of 15 years. I think when we look at um, winning cases or handling cases that are reported, at the moment, we see a lot of reliance on medical reports. I speak now of um, investigation. You know, rape is not a tea party that you call people, oh, come and be raped. Most times it's, he said, she said. You did it, I did not do it. So you need to, you, we need evidence. And at the moment, there's a lot of reliance on the medical report, medical report emanating from the hospitals. But we're seeing a lot of our judgment, a lot of our cases being thrown out of court because we're not, the medical report does not link the accused or the defendant to the survivor. And so we need to move beyond medical reports to science, forensics. How can we link perpetrators to survivors? And that's one of the reasons why um, the SACs, um, the family health care centers, some of them have what we call rape kits, sexual assault evidence collection kits, where we, we believe that if survivors present within the golden hour period, um, they're able to have the doctors they are able to perform head-to-toe -to forensic medical examination samples can be collected and the kits can be transmitted to the dna lab so we match we're able to see if we can match uh if we can have a match between the survival and the alleged abuser you see cases are not won in court cases are won during investigation if the judge the prosecutor is only as good as the evidence that they have. And that evidence is built by the police. And so it is very important that we pay in, place a lot of attention on the police when they're investigating. Now, there's a lot of bashing that goes on. The police always receives a lot of bashing. I'm not here to watch brief for the police. But the fact of the matter is that if you want to address an issue, you want to provide constructive criticism, you need to understand the issues. You need to understand what the issues are. Now, at the police level, we have what we call family support units in Lagos, 11 in Lagos State. These are stations that have designated police officers that address issues of sexual and gender-based violence. It may interest you to know that none of these FSUs have a vehicle attached to them. And yet, we expect them to move from their office to visit the scene of the crime to place the survivor at the scene of the crime, not just to do table investigation, to move, to go to the scene of the crime, yeah. to get evidence, to speak to people. But how would they do this? They, they, yeah. they don't have mobility. Yeah. It may also interest you to note that they don't even have running costs. I just recently found that out. I thought they had, but apparently they do not. And yet they are expected to perform some magic to, to ensure that they do 
tight, watertight investigation and were able to secure conviction. So I think, yes, this does not absorb the police in any way, but there are issues in the investigation at the investigation stage. Whatever anybody else does, they're going to lay on the foundation that the police has already laid. And if the foundation is shaky, the cases will be thrown out. And can you imagine, a case happened in 2016. The, the, the case is adjudicated upon in the High Court in 2017. And then the judge says, the prosecution has not proven its case beyond all reasonable doubt. And as such, I find you not guilty. Can you imagine the trauma that the child or the parent will go through after waiting maybe two, three years to get that kind of judgment? And so we need to do a lot more um, in, um, in ensuring that our police are well-equipped properly trained and empowered to be able to carry out proper, proper investigation of these cases so that we can start winning these cases and then um, ensuring that justice is truly served. Thank you very much. Josephine, um, I'd like you to talk about this because you've been around for 21 years. And so you have considerable experience in terms of legislation and what the law does and what it doesn't do and how people are unable to maybe um, get justice. Can you address that, please? Yeah, um, um, where I am always so angry sometimes because the law is one thing and the practice is the other. Yeah, yeah. Um, the law, even before the VAP came in, the criminal code was very clear on issues bordering on rape you know, indecent assault, um, defilement, and all of that. Yes. But in Nigeria, because of the, like Lola said, we are not going to hold brief for the police, but the truth of the matter is this. The police is poorly funded. Yeah. There's no funding for investigations. And as such, you will go alleging a crime, you have to fund the investigation. And oh, wow. it goes to the highest bidder. Yes, that's the gospel truth of it. There is no funding for investigation. So if I go reporting or Project Alert takes a case, you know, to the police station, we must, I mean, none of my lawyers leave the office without 5,000 Naira. None of my lawyers leave the office without 5K. Because starting from photocopying of paper, making a phone call to the perpetrator or something or even following oh madam did you come with a car if you didn't come with a car then you have to they won't enter bus with you you have to hire a taxi yeah you know so the reality of and that is where you see a lot of victims you know say i leave it to god please i yes. plead with all of us here let's not let's stop if we were doing it before let's stop this blaming of vic I mean, victims and saying you know we it's the most recent one, I mean, I don't want to, it's the issue of debunch and, I mean, that's another yeah. issue. But the whole issue of the criminal justice system, the criminal justice system, the, the, the cost of getting justice, of seeking justice, is so high that if you cannot foot it, then don't even go there. So the laws are there, very beautiful laws, but the practice is something else. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you very much. So I'd like to ask now, um, what more needs to be done? What kind of social support structures do we need to build actively? Uh, Kemi, uh, you might want to just start with, uh, with this, um, and then Josephine will also then talk about it um, uh, to conclude her thought on, on this. 
what kind of uh, support structures do you think we should have in place? And Lola, I guess you'll be listening closely to this one. I think, um, well, it's very clear, just listening to Lola and Josephine, that what we need is um, advocating for suitable policies and bills that cross over not just one state, but all 36 states. We're very fortunate that Lagos is one of the more progressive states. But you and I know that if we go up north, for instance, we're going to have challenges when it comes to the existing laws and harmonizing the laws that we have down south. I think we also have to look at the essential services as a national budgetary line item, because again, we're looking at challenges that speak to support, but support on not just the survivor level, but now we're looking at all the implemented um, facilities that we have to make available, police and law enforcement being one of them. Awareness, awareness and education is key. Professor Coker mentioned the fact that, you know, the girl still has to go home if she's a young child and the community still has to be enabling for her to speak out. We have to continue with the awareness. We have to continue with the education. We have to use our existing media outlets to actually go out there and offer a platform for these young girls and these women so they can come forward and speak out. I think we need to develop more comprehensive health services. We talked about that. The sexual assault referral centers that we mentioned, and these are specialized services like the Warriors Center. And yes, we do offer immediate medical services and forensic medical examinations. However, there are only three in Lagos, we're 22 million people. And across Nigeria, there are only 22 sexual assault referral centers. I know the primary healthcare centers are also available, but I know that they need more training opportunities and so therefore we can then offer comprehensive services across the country. And then to other services, shelter and accommodation, very quickly, I'm sure Josephine will confirm this. Many shelters closed down, especially during the COVID time. And those that stayed open had to ask for COVID tests because sadly they were concerned about the spread of the virus in these centers. But then these referral pathways weren't looked at. So women that arguably are not ill can't get a COVID test. So where do they go? And then we have to start promoting education, looking at that young child. We never spoke about the girl child and the boy child and educational services that have to be available to prevent the problem. We can't leave the boys behind. We have to include them in the conversation. So every program that we have available for a girl child, we have to look at the boy child. And for me, what's really key, collection and collated data. We have to monitor trends and patterns that relate to gender-based violence in the long term. So all of these are roadmaps, our blueprints are based on accurate numbers and predictions. So we can now effectively start to address this issue. Okay, thank you. Josephine. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks, Jamal. I'll just, um, I'll flow from where Kemi stopped. Um, mm -hmm. We run the first shelter for abused women in Nigeria, known as Sophia's Place. And like Kemi rightly said, it was a huge challenge, especially during the COVID-19 period. And um, I'll use this opportunity um, um, to inform all that we almost paid the price for it because um, at the peak of it, we admitted a young girl and we didn't know she was um, COVID-19 positive because we just, she was in a, a bad sexual abuse situation and we had to get her out of it. And we got her into the shelter the exact day she went for the test at Naima. But we couldn't wait for four or five days for that result to come out. By the time she was in our shelter and the result came out, she was positive. We had to shut down the shelter for two weeks. A lot of you would be, I mean, Lola, I don't think I've said this to anyone, but this is what happened to us. We actually had to shut down for two weeks 
my driver and my shelter administrator had to go for tests. And that was, it was only after that we opened the shelter again, you know, um, after that. So it is time we put our money where our heart is. Advocacy is the easiest thing to do. You know, we are talking, we keep talking. Oh yes, we keep talking. But we need to put resources, money into victim support. You know, the SACs, the response, the criminal justice system. We need to, we've been advocating, we've been saying, okay, just like fundamental human rights, when cases of violence against women go before the court, they shouldn't charge fees. They should, they, should waive, they should waive them so that these cases can move. But each time you have to go and pay, you pay here, you pay there. A lot of these women are so indigent. When they come to Project Alata and we say, oh, you have to pay a stipend for logistics. Oh, I don't have money. They start crying on your head. What do you do? You know, so it is high time we put money where our heart is. It's, I mean, we've, we've enough of the lip service, quite a lot of lip service. You know, people talk and talk and talk and talk. At the end of the day, they move on from there and then the victims continue. And victims will continue to, to, to leave it to God until such a time when we know that God will not come down and do what we are supposed to do as human beings and do what we are supposed to do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, we've had this conversation because um, WIMBIS has um, put together this webinar, Take a Stand, Say No to Sexual and Gender-Based Violence. What is that? And we've talked across the responsibilities, parents, family, friends, members of the community. But what last words would you leave us with? Because you are, like I said, I think of you as the four pillars, the cornerstone, the four cornerstones, one, the immediate um, um, people who see the first port of call, medical, then um, the, 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 the mental, then, of course, the, the, the legal part, and then the advocacy. Uh, these four pillars, you're the cornerstone on which the house for saying no and taking a stand will be built. So what are your last words? For me, um, can I, can I start? Just since you're already, you, you might as well just start that one. Yes. Okay. What are your last words? Yeah, my last words uh, would flow with what one of my sisters, Ito Reza Anapa, has just put on the chat group. And it is that the private sector needs to be involved in this. They really need, as part of their corporate social responsibility, they need to ensure that they put funds aside for this, because especially in the banks and other sectors, because over 50% of their customers and people whom they make money from are women. <laughs> Our women and as such, they need to put funding money down. They need to be actively involved in this, um, in this, in this fight. That's what I would like to stop with. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, Kemi, what would you like to say? What's your last word? Um, I think what I would like to say is we all certainly have um, an individual role to play in addressing gender-based violence, especially in all our various circles of influence, whether it's in the marketplace or in a boardroom. We all come from family units, whether we're parents or not. So we know that we need to address our attitudes in raising our children. And we all live in communities. And so therefore we need to adopt a more enabling community and be better bystanders. But for all of this to successfully work, we have to go to the very beginning. And that's very simply by believing the survivor. This survivor has put her or his trust in you. And it's a very important responsibility. I mean, usually these are well-kept secrets and you're now the custodian of that secret. And so it's our responsibility to believe him or her, especially if it's a child. A child has chosen you above all others. And so we must start by very simply 
believing all survivors. And this would certainly be able to change one's life and perhaps even save a life. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Professor Coker, would you like to say the last words? From um, the mental health point of view, I think mothers should be very close to their daughters. I, 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 I'm not sure they are close and they, they need to re reduce the communication gap between them and their daughters because charity begins at home. If your daughter or your child cannot come and report to you, then he or she cannot report elsewhere. Okay. Parents should talk to their sons too, that when a girl or a woman says no, no means no. I mean, if a boy starts to hear that kind of message from the age of 10, I mean, that will sow a message in his heart. And of course, when a person has encountered uh, gender-based violence, the person should talk to somebody. And I must commend Warif, I must commend Mural Bear, Project Island, people, the civil society organizations who are doing wonderful things because the psychiatrists and the clinical psychologists are so few that you can't even reach them unless you get to tertiary hospitals. So that's my last word. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lala, government, what's your last word? Um, so I think when we hear these statistics, six months old was defiled, two years old was defiled, 70-year-old woman was assaulted, we generally tend to shudder, you know, we sympathize. But I think when we get this information, what next? What do we do? Are we helpless? I don't think we're helpless. I think as leaders in different sectors, members of MIMBIS, I think each and every one of us can contribute to this fight, just as um, Mrs. Epa Chukuma said. I think um, corporate organizations, the private sector, can play a huge role in, um, in joining this fight. Providing soft loans for the banks, the financial institutions, providing grants, mentoring survivors of domestic violence on their road to healing. I think even as parents, we, can, we should engage us, uh, the schools our children are in to ensure that they have safeguarding and child protection policies so that when disclosures of abuse are made, there are designated safeguarding officers that are trained to be able to address these issues properly. And each and every one of us has a platform. Some may have more followership than others, but we all have a platform. So what are we using our platform for? On Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, for please follow organizations that provide services services of, to survivors of sexual and gender-based violence. We tweet, post, tag, let's keep this conversation going. And then we should all remember that we are mandated reporters. If we see something, we should say something, and we should do something. Thank you very much. Now, this um, webinar is not over yet because you have to look at the questions. But I'd really just like to say again, repeat the idea of the four, four pillars. It's, it's really interesting to me, actually, that we were get, able to get all of you because you've provided such context in different areas, body, mind, advocacy, and the legal system. And that really covers what we need to work on um, to be able to take a stand. Um, I'd like to, to just go over a little bit some of the things that you've said. So we asked who are the people who commit these acts. We've defined um, gender-based violence as, as really actions and, and behavior and, and, um, that, that are threatening to, to people, whether or not it's physical or non-physical. The important thing is that it's threatening and it results in, 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 in um, violence of some sort. 
physical, non-physical violence against who, who it's perpetrated on. And we've identified that it's mostly women. And so we've asked the question, what kind of people commit these acts? And we said people who are subject to alcohol and drug use, um, early sexual initiation, narcissistic people, people who are hostile towards women, people who um, have sexual fantasies and have watched a lot of pornography, um, people who have a childhood history of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, and um, poor parent-child relationships, flashes exhibitionist pedophilia. What strikes me is that, again, as we've said before, you can't tell looking at a person who they are and what they can do. And so it is to recognize that some of the people we think are safe are not safe and that we need to be careful because there's a broad range of uh, perpetrators. And then we talked about um, the social and community factors. And I'm just going to say that we, we said that the, the culture of um, patriarchy is very much something that um, makes it difficult in the social and community level. And, and, and so the, it, it results from, a, it therefore results in a lack of institutional support in many instances. It, resu it results in a sort of mindset, a mindset that considers that it's okay for men to do certain things and it's not okay for women to report. They should just sit down and take it. And so it's important that we change this mindset. Um, so the work, even in your conclusions, the work starts at the social and community level from the parents' home and then what the people in the community who support us do. And so it's important that we uh, pay attention to that. And we've identified many forms of uh, sexual violence, rape, prostitution, uh, sexual exploitation or trafficking, child marriages, forced marriages, sexual abuse of children, uh, sexual harassment, forced abortion, baby factories. You know, these are all things that we hear about. And when it doesn't happen to you, you don't get the import of it. Um, to be honest, researching for this webinar exposed me to much more than I could believe. And I also found, like I said at the beginning, that I now started hearing stories, lots of stories of what, get, what happens about incest. And we didn't, we, I asked the question about incest and nobody really addressed it because it is a very taboo subject, especially when it's related to a child, you know? Um, so what do we do about that? And so we, we came to the conclusion really that there's psychological, cultural, religious, and financial reasons uh, or, or the faces of, sex, of sexual violence cover the whole gamut of that. And we talked a little bit about sexual violence against men. Um, it's getting more common. It's usually sodomy, rape, sodomy. Um, but there is also, I think, um, emasculation because we've had a couple of cases where wives cut off their husband's um, sexual organs. And, and, and these are things that are difficult to talk about. Um, and then we talked about the, the legislation and what it is that we can do. And what it is that we can do is that all of us have to be part of the battle. We all have to join in and take a position. That is really what we need to do. Uh, Titi Lokwe's, um, um um, um, performance, uh, you know, it, it says it all. We feel disempowered, women, but we're not. It's up to us. We need to take it up and push it, um, um, move, move to the next level. So I'm going to now look at some of the questions so that we can ask our panelists to, to address these questions. Okay. Um, now, this question is for Lola, um, she says she owns a foundation that advocates for the welfare of women and girls. 
and there's a lot of secondary abuse in the police station. When a case is reported, sometimes the police officers take the victim to a corner to check, and, I, and, and, and to check. I can only imagine what checking means. So, um, Lola, do you want to address that? Okay, so I know that used to happen in the past, and that is why we advocate for people to use or to visit the family support units. We have currently um, 11, and then including the gender desk department at the police command to 12. We have family support units across the state. I could share the locations of each of these units. And we encourage people to please visit the family support units to report cases of sexual and gender-based violence. Why? Because handling of these issues requires um, training, it requires empathy, it requires professionalism, and it requires skill. Not all police officers, unfortunately, have these skills. And so please, survivors are encouraged, people who want to serve as mandated reporters are encouraged to report to the family support units. Okay. And um, just to Mm -hmm. Just to state that, I think when something happens, we are not comfortable with the treatment that we receive at a police station. The police officer doesn't treat us from a customer service perspective. I think the burden on is on us as reformers to escalate because we need to give the system feedback. If we don't give the system feedback, the system cannot improve. The system will think that all is well. And so please, if you engage a police officer that doesn't treat your case with the professionalism that it deserves, escalate. Escalate to the DPU. Escalate to the Commissioner of Police. Escalate to the Attorney General's Office. Escalate so that the next person that approaches that, that division will not be treated the way you were treated. Thank you. Now, uh, Josephine, somebody says, how can I protect myself from being a victim of sexual abuse? Um, you can, this is, um, I answer it this way. You can protect yourself by being alert, but I also want, it's, it's not just about the person. It's also the, the perpetrators need to also stop. We can't keep heaping this all on women and young girls and even boys, like Prof said, even boys now who are being gang raped, you know, um, we talk about people who say, okay, dress well, um, don't walk in the dark, don't walk alone. If you're a young girl, seven o'clock, don't go out. Come on, why, why, would, why would someone have to be, uh, um, I would, why, would I, why should I take responsibility for the, for the uh, uh, crime or the, the um, what mine or whatever of the other person? But be that as it may, what we tell a lot of young girls um, is, is when we are talking to them is, for instance, is, um, you know, um, work, work in, in groups as much as possible, work in groups, know the body kind of system when you're going around as much as possible. Um, don't block your two ears with your, with your earphones, you know, so that somebody doesn't just sneak in behind you and grab you. Um, um, be sensitive to, you know, be very observant when you walk into a place how dark or well lit is it how many people are there uh, where's the nearest escape route if i have to run out of there you know stuff like that with basic security um and then of course one thing we try to do is i tell young girls learn physical activity like taekwondo or something you know just learn something so that it's not to kill the person it's just to disarm the person and run away as if, mm. if, if you find yourself 
in such a situation. And another thing I tell young girls, always have, even if it is the last 15 naira on your phone, please keep it for an emergency call. The last 15 Thank you. Uh, thank you. Kemi, um, in the case of child abuse, what are the signs we should be looking out for? So in the case of child abuse, depending on the age of the child, if you're dealing with a young child that can articulate to you what's going on, then you might start to notice that the child is withdrawn. You might start to notice like a lot of behavioral changes with your child. You may have had a happy child that suddenly does not want to play or go outside. You might also observe that the child is particularly wary of a specific adult, perhaps an uncle or, for instance, or an aunt in the home, and the child no longer wants to spend time alone with this individual. Changes in the child's milestones. A child that stopped bedwetting years ago might start bedwetting again. Changes in the child's school performance. A child that's doing well in school, suddenly you notice that her grades or his grades are going down. Nightmares, sleep pattern changes. The child suddenly wants them to change. And then look out for physical signs. Look at your child's underwear. Examine your child. See if there are any bruises. See if there are any signs of an infection, for instance. These would be probably the very first signs that you might start to notice changes if your child is being abused. Okay, thank you very much. Now, a question following up from that is for Lola, actually. That what is the punishment for parents who neglect their children? Is there any punishment for, for parents who, when, you, when children are, are brought up, are the victims and they're brought forward? Is there any punishment for them? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Okay, so we actually don't have criminal neglect in our law, unfortunately. Um, so it, I think there's a divide. Um, part of society or part of the responders in this space are advocating for us to introduce criminal neglect in our criminal laws. So in, the, in, in an instance where it is obvious that the caregiver has been, has been, has neglected or has been negligent in the manner in which the child is being raised or catered for, perhaps that person should be punished. But there's also another school of thought that is of the opinion that, okay, you want to punish the primary caregiver. So when you're punishing that caregiver, chances are that person will be institutionalized in the prison. So what happens to that child? Are you going to further institutionalize that child by placing the child in, a, in an orphanage or in a home? So I think um, enlightenment is truly superior to enforcement. We need to do a lot of enlightenment, a lot of advocacy, a lot of, we need to build capacity for parents on how, on parenting really. Some people have just wandered into this thing called parenting. Some, unfortunately, lack the skills, you know. They don't even know signs to look out for, just as Dr. Kemi enumerated the different signs. Some don't even know what to look out for if their child is being abused. Some, most most, most um, cases of sexual violence are detected when the parents or the caregiver is giving a bath for the child. They're washing that area. They notice that the child is, is you know, is in pains. And that is when they find out, you know. So I think we need to do a lot more in terms of advocacy. And then perhaps in the, in the extreme cases, yes, we should um, penalize um, um, caregivers who, are, who neglect children and cause children to be exposed to, to abuse, either child sexual abuse, physical, emotional, or other types of abuse. 
Okay, um, Professor Koka, can I ask you a question? Um, workplace sexual harassment, what would you advise organizations to do to prevent it? And, and you know, what would you suggest um, is done? Because the thing with workplace sexual harassment, especially when it's non-physical, when it destroys people's confidence and therefore their ability to work, how would you suggest that a workplace do something to manage that? Foremost, I don't think women actually know times could be verbal and psychological. So then, hello, can you hear yes. me? Yes, we can hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes, most we can hear you. Workers, yes. Most female workers don't even know that uh, sexual harassment is going on at the workplace. Most especially, it's mainly verbal and emotional. So if you don't know that you are being harassed sexually by your superiors or by your ordinates, then how can you go about fighting for your rights? So it goes back to having public education, awareness and advocacy at the workplace that look, um, your, your promotion should not depend upon how your, your supervisor wants it to be. So I think there has to be a lot of advocacy also at the workplace concerning sexual harassment, because most women don't even know that they have been sexually harassed at the place of work. And that is the job of the WIMBs and of, of course, many, many were female NGOs and civil society organizations. Okay. Thank you very much. Now, a question was asked. I don't know whether it's a question or it's, it's a question. I don't know how you're going to answer it. Josephine, I'm going to throw that to you about how do we get the powerful imams and pastors to stop telling women to stay in their marital homes when there's a lot of violence? How well, can we reach them? Um, they, the, the, the pastors and the imams, the religious, the faith, the the, the, the faith leaders, they, they play a very important role in this and we really need to engage them. We, we can't do without engaging them because um, a lot of people run to them. I tell people that um, before people come to NGOs like us, they would have gone to family, gone to my pastor, gone to my imam, and then they'll tell you, pray about it, cook food and let's eat, there's peace. You know, artificial peace is made and all of that. So we need to let them know that between the sanctity of life and the sanctity and religion, life comes first. You need to be alive for you to be a wife and be in marriage. You need to be alive uh, to be a husband, if not you are dead. You know, so we need to engage them for them to understand that life comes first. And I always tell people that what I see with religion, be it Islam or Christianity, and the two religious books most times is the manipulation and the misinterpretation of these books. The manipulation and misinterpretation of these books. Just to suit, like I said earlier on about Ephesians 5.22, you know, it is very easy to quote things out of context. You quote 22, you forget 21, you forget 23, you forget 24. That talks about man, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. We need to engage them on this issue, you know? So very important they are in this discussion. 
Thank you very much. Those are the only questions we can take. Unfortunately, um, our time has run out. But I'd just like to mention, and um, the answers were, we need policies, forensic services, um, shelters, more shelters, education, data, just victim support and continuous advocacy. And I also asked um, the panelists for their last words. And their last words are, the private sector needs to get involved as part of their um, social responsibility, corporate social responsibility. Individuals, as individuals, we must be involved. Who is going to talk about it? We're the ones, the ones who are affected, the ones who know people who are affected and the ones who can do something about those who have been affected. And we have to um, continue to run programs that will help us to change society's attitudes. Because without a mindset attitude, a mindset change, there can be no attitude on that. And Professor Koka at that point then says that mothers should be close to their daughters and um, listen when they say things and investigate it. And um, Finally, as leaders, all of us have to contribute to this fight. Corporate organizations, individuals, government models as well to keep the conversation going. And I think that's an excellent place to say thank you very much to all our panelists. I really am very pleased with them that we were able to get all of you because I keep saying it, those four critical pillars of the cornerstone on which we are going to build, each one of you has brought something special um, to this conversation. And um, I have been particularly pleased, to be honest, at the breadth of the answers that you have given. Um, and I'd like to thank you very, very much, um, Professor Coker, um, Josephine, Kemi, Lola, and I'm sure that all our participants, um, and especially the, um, the people who organized this, So Ijoma, I hand this back over to you. Ijoma. We need to clap for you too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Is Ijoma back on? Yes, I am. Thank you. Well, can I just say thank you so much to each of our panelists and our moderator. I think, I dare say that was very a very powerful conversation very thought-provoking i particularly like the way that mrs idigwe set the tone in setting out the four pillars and the way each of our speakers really spoke to it really just makes my work easy so at the time we were working as a committee to bring this together we were really thinking about how do we change the societal response to um victims you know that allow them to carry on this guilt in silence, how do we actually tackle, aggressively tackle these problems? So all of the points that all of you distinguished panelists have made in line with WIMBIS, our pillar of advocacy, we're going to ensure that these points will be from today will be distilled into a formal communique that will be circulated widely. I think that we must all join hands and push as aggressively as possible to ensure that we really fight this menace that is sexual and gender-based violence. So with that, I just want to lend my voice to Mrs. Idigwe, say thank you to each and every one of you. And I'm so pleased with the outcome of this conversation because it really addresses the initial objective 
of amplifying the conversations around this current challenge. Thank you very much. Um, now, just in terms of closing, I'd like to say again that an evaluation link will be sent to all participants. It will come through to you in your email. Please, please, please share your feedback with us. We need to hear your feedback. We need to hear from you. Um, again, like we've been saying, this has been a very important conversation and we really need to get this feedback. Your feedback will, of course, be considered as we, put together, as we seek to put together this formal communicate. Our work is not done with this webinar. Once again, I'd like to appreciate our sponsors, Sterling Bank, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Balm Investments, AG Leventis, and Printivo. And I'd like to say in this time, it is not easy to get sponsorship. So we really appreciate our sponsors, we appreciate their support, and we appreciate their passion for this cause. And I'd just like to play one of our sponsors' videos, Sterling Bank, we've got a short video, really just speaking to, the, to their services. I don't have a volume on this, is it just me? Secretary, there's no sound on your video. Okay. Well, if there's no sound, I think we generally get the idea. Go right now and get the One Bank app this minute. Do it. Now. Register. Open an account. Thank you very much for that. Um, in addition, I'd like to especially thank my committee members. Um, I'm not going to name them one by one, but they know themselves. They've worked very hard on this topic, very emotive topic, and it was important that we chose our panelists very carefully. Um, so I'm very proud and very grateful for your time, each and every one of you. Thank you so much. As you know, WIMBIS is a volunteer-based organization, so we, we really take people's time and efforts, and I really thank them for all of their efforts. Um, now, a list of organizations that support survivors has been put in the chat room. So I would urge everyone, before you leave this webinar, please go to the chat room. There's been information on different um, support services available. We've got Project Alert on here. We've got WIRIF on here. But in addition, you will see in the chat room that the Secretariat has put inform information on the wide range of support services that are available for survivors. Please avail yourself of the information before you actually leave this webinar. Um, lastly, I'd like to invite all our participants who are not WIMBIS associates. I'd like to toot our horn and say, I think you can see that when we, you know, we're passionate about issues that affect women, that affect gender equality, that affect even our boy child. And I'd like to invite you, if you're not an associate of WIMBIS, kindly become one today. And you know, if you are an associate, support us, renew your membership, and contact us via membership at wimbiz.org. I really do hope that you've enjoyed this session, and um, we look forward to having you at 
another session of, uh, you know, of another webinar that WinBase puts together. We have our roundtables on a monthly basis. Do visit our website and um, get involved with our programs. Once again, thank you to our speakers. Thank you to our panelists. And I wish you all a very good evening and goodbye. Thank you. Are you telling me you're just hearing about the One Bank app by Sterling? Well, let me catch you up before you get cancelled. We are talking about instant account opening, no paperwork required, and no waiting in line to hear a customer service officer say, please wait your turn, Ma. And check this, I don't have to go to the bank to get a physical debit card because I created a virtual one to help with all my online purchases. Ah, I can see I have picked your interest. There's more. I can apply for and get an instant loan on my OneBank app via Spectre. I can also get up-to-date news on what's going on around me. What are you waiting for? Head over to your app store right now and get the OneBank app this minute. Do it. Now. Register. Open an account.